You're listening to Halloween Unleashed. Hey, hey, it's Chris Morgan, and this is Halloween Unleashed. And I just want to take a little moment before we get started with today's episode to tell you a little bit about our shop on TeePublic, about where you can find your latest and greatest merchandise to rock. Ryan Hogel is the designer, and uh, he's supporting the show by providing this to each and every single one of you. There's discounts all over the place on TeePublic. Uh, there's 30% discounts, there's initial upload discounts, like every time a new design comes uh, comes out, we have it set to where you, the listeners, get 20% off of the normal retail price. And normally it only lasts for a day or two, so you've got to jump on these designs while they're hot, while they're fresh, while they're new. So some of, some of these designs aren't going to be for everybody, and we get that. But at the same time, we want to make sure that if you want to get the best deal on Halloween Unleashed merchandise, that you jump on these designs immediately as they go out. You go over to T-E-E, that's T, public.com, forward slash user, forward slash Chris M1229, which is my user handle. But it's uh, something I set up several years ago, and I just decided to kind of roll with it. And I had no idea that this thing was going to take off the way that it did. We appreciate each and every single one of you purchasing merchandise, stickers, um, shirts, posters, you name it. You know, if you can go to tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash chrism1229 for your latest and greatest merchandise. Uh, Definitely uh, have more designs getting ready to drop here soon. So please stay tuned for each and every single new release that comes out. But bookmark that, tpublic.com forward slash user forward slash chrism1229. And every purchase goes to support this podcast so that we can keep this ad-free and sponsor-free. We thank you and uh, enjoy today's episode. Halloween Unleashed. Six-year-old child with this blank, pale, emotionless face and the blackest eyes, the devil's eyes. Well, did you get my beer? Well, can't you answer me? Okay, I'll answer was destined to his own fate. You're listening to Halloween Unleashed. Hey, hey, everyone, this is Chris Morgan, and welcome to Halloween Unleashed. And uh, conspicuous by his absence is Brandon Zachman, who has been on the uh, on the shows with me the last few weeks, doing a lot of mask indie collector side of, of, of things. Um, I had said a few weeks ago um, that I was going to have another Brandon join me. Um, I have Brandon Duran. Is that correct? Uh, yeah. Okay, I just want to make sure I pronounced it correct, but this is Brandon Duran. Oh, you're good. You- Brandon, welcome, and thank you for sitting in with me today. How did we get to know each other? Well, thanks for having me, man. I appreciate it. I'm super stoked to be here with you. Um, 
the way that we kind of got into contact was, um, surprisingly enough, we're both huge Buccaneer fans. I mean, kind of given, I could see it on your angle, you know, living in Florida. But I myself live in Washington, so the chances of us meeting kind of seem out there with uh, me being a Bucks fan. And, you know, we had met through listening to the same uh, Buccaneers Uncensored, Uncensored podcast and through the Facebook page and... Right. Uh, you were invited into a group chat that I was a part of. Correct. And yep. I got to kind of, yeah, I kind of got to know you through there. And then I friended you. I noticed that you had all these uh, Michael Myers pictures on your uh, Facebook profile. And being a huge Halloween fan, that that kind of kind ended up being like a double whammy. kind of struck a chord. And I'm like, wow, this guy... That's pretty cool. He's got a bunch of Myers uh, masks on here. That was before I knew that you had such a career of making them. Being a Halloween fan, I mean, obviously you, you've heard the goal of the of the podcast is like you know where you know we can bring not just mask fans together, but bring franchise fans together through the means of the history of the independent masks. And did right. you know anything about the independent Myers market before? engaging in the podcast and talking with me um no i didn't i had i had no idea that there was a um such a huge community of uh independent mask making um i didn't find that out until actually you know getting to know you a little bit more and talking to you you know through our mutual love for the football team that you were like yeah you know i, I make these masks and it just kind of blew me away. I'm, <laughs> I still get kind of like, I don't know what the word would be, but I still kind of get excited, like seeing just the work that you put out there. I, it, yeah, it, it, it definitely isn't as often as I, as I used to, but, uh, I still like to have right. fun here and there, but, um, no, I, I definitely appreciate you, you, you following the show and, uh, you know, you being a, a listener, you know, you just posted the other day that you got your uh, He's Coming t-shirt with a thorn symbol. Uh, you know, I so, did. You know, you seem pretty excited about that. Tell everyone that maybe hasn't bought a shirt yet or anything like that, what type of quality could they expect from Tee Public? The shirts are great. I'm actually wearing my, um, my Unleashed shirt uh, with B-Man Jim on it right now. Um, it's close to your great. heart. I. It's close to my heart, right here. <laughs> I'm always wearing one. It seems like, but yeah, you definitely even like I, when I got my Heath Coming shirt, I bought that the day it came out, so I was able to get that um, discounted price. But even still, it's it's worth it's more than worth the full price, and I do plan to get a couple more here coming up pretty soon. But the quality is good. Um, I've washed this uh, Unleashed shirt several times. Um, no sign of fading yet, so if you haven't got one yet and you're on the fence about it, I would definitely recommend doing it. Um, so, all right. Buy a shirt. Um, buy a shirt. But, um, yeah, so we're, we're here to talk about Halloween 1978. We're here to talk about movie mistakes, Easter eggs, things that we may not have known, but this is what's going on. I mean, this was voted on by the, by the community. And, uh, you know, when uh, I was saying that we're going to go more movie-based stuff, I said this might be your time to step in. Um, Mm -hmm. Originally, Brandon and I were, the other Brandon and I were going to do this. It's just uh, 
Uh, the last couple of weeks doing stuff at night has been hard because I'm back on my uh, my health kick and working out at 5:30 in the morning and staying up until 12 o'clock doing doing Send this. Send me podcast. some of your motivation, my friend. <laughs> exactly. So I could, use some, I could use some of that. Well, you know, I I have a I have a saying, and I and I definitely don't mean to sidebar here, and but no, this is definitely good advice for anybody that. Um, is wanting to do anything in life, and you can apply this to anything. So listen to this, and this is what inspired it all. When the pain of staying the same becomes too great is the only time you will change. That's true. So I was at a point where I couldn't I couldn't run 10 feet without being winded. Um. I could not get out and run around and play with my son, who is overly active, uh, and play any type of ball with him out in the backyard because my knees were literally exploding. And it's like, and I'm I'm not talking like I'm five six hundred pounds or anything, but I'm 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 definitely heavier than I should be for my frame and 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 for my build. So um, when you're Knees are hurting all the time. Your your low back is killing you all the time. Um, you're waking up every day just feeling like shit. Um, that's when I said, you know, the pain of staying the same is too great. So I think I'm I'm ready to make a change. And I remember a couple years ago when I was doing it, how much better I felt. And um, in conjunction with all that, how much weight I dropped off and how much leaner I got and tone I got. Um, and I'm like, you know, I just kind of let things kind of slip. It's easy to do that. But, uh, I'm at a point now where I, I don't want that to happen. And, uh, you know, I got to start taking care of myself, man. I just turned 40. So, um, and I got two little kids. They're going to be counting on me to be here. So I got to do everything I possibly can, to just make sure that uh, I do everything I can to make sure that I'm here for the long haul. All right, that's good on you, man. I'm I'm not that far behind you. I'll be 36 uh, in two months, and wow. I have a I have a two-year-old, almost three. That's going to depend on me. And the problem is, is I haven't reached that point to where I'm like, I like something's got to change. I don't know if it's just me being stubborn, lazy, or what, but, like, it's getting closer, man. Like, yesterday, seeing, um, like, you just, like, all the recent deaths and you seeing people die that aren't that old, you know what I mean? By either strokes, heart attacks, like, shit, what was it? Um, Luke Perry just passed, who was only, what, 52? 52. Like, that dude's only, yeah, that dude's only 17 years older than I am. Yeah, and um, you know, like that's that's scary shit. It is. And I'm in horrible shape. I am in horrible shape. <laughs> um, yeah, I I actually my my uh, grandmother who who raised me. Um, I, I I'm typically I'm not affected by uh, celebrity deaths at all. Um, right. And it's it's weird because you know I I, I see everybody thinking that. That, that they're breaking all this news to the world and they'll talk like they knew this celebrity and it's like, okay, I, I sort of get it. You, you, you became right. attracted to the characters that they played or the sport that they played. I, I get it, you know, but mm-hmm. it just never really affected me. But, you know, what he died from, 
um, touched me on a very personal level. I mean, I was always a fan of Luke Perry's work. Uh, funny story. Um, I was a 90210 guy, and it's not because I was a little light in the pants or, or anything like that. It was uh, simply I had I had a seventh grade crush that uh, she was probably one of the hottest girls in my grade, and I was such an introvert, <laughs> and, and I couldn't talk to her. And But her and her girlfriends would sit around in agriculture class every week and talk about 90210. And I'm like, I need to start watching that show so I have something to approach her with. So (laughs) that's kind of how I did it. That was my end. I mean, I was quickly friend-zoned because I was just the 90210 guy that was talking. Uh, But, you know, we're we're still friends to this day. So, I mean, it kind of works. And But, you know. But you know it. But uh, but over that time, I got to know I, I got to know the character because I was I was becoming more of a fan of the storylines in the show and seeing it beyond of it just being a chick show. And I'm like, okay, yeah, you know, I I can definitely vibe with this, and I, I definitely like this guy because he's kind of an he's kind of a no nonsense a hole, and I can appreciate that. And a lot of the things that he battled as a character, I'm like, well, I gravitated towards that. And then everything that he's mm-hmm. been in since then, um, I think he's highly—he was highly underrated as an actor. And uh, we live in a day and age where you're getting conspiracies and and different scandals and different things. And the one thing I will constantly come back and say again: I don't pretend to ever know him on a personal level, but you can really start right. to see a big picture of of, of someone of that stature uh, when. Nothing in nothing in the last thirty years in his career has ever been like a involved in anything scan scandal right uh, driven. You never heard his name. No, never, unless it was positivity. And since he's been gone, and and some of the people that knew him um, and worked with him and stuff has come out and said, you know, what a professional he was, and and what a kind and gentle heart he had. You love to hear stuff like that because that is far and few between in this day and age. It really is. So, And that's kind of where I was going with that. Not so much the fact that he was a celebrity or anything like that, but just more of like on a health aspect, like what you said, like it hit close to home. And I'm like, I'm in a shape where I could, something like that could happen to me. Yeah, me and, too. You me know, too. Yeah, um, I, uh, Things like that are eye-opening, not just necessarily who the person is. I mean, people die every day for the same thing. You just don't hear about it because they're not famous. Yeah. And stuff like that does really well, kind of I, I mean, it, perspective. It definitely rocked me because, um, and again, I was upset over it because uh, my grandmother who, who raised me, and this is where I was going with that, um, in 2005, my, my aunt uh, had passed away, um, and it it took a real big toll on my grandmother and she had a stroke, um, a pretty massive one, like shortly after that, where she was, um, she was in a rehab center for, uh, about two months and she was never the same after that. She couldn't communicate well. I mean, you can definitely tell that she was not herself. Um, then she suffered Mm -hmm. several TIAs, which are many strokes for those that don't know, uh, over the course of the next, uh, year and a half. And uh, this is the part of the story where, uh, you know, I'm I'm okay talking about it now, but in the past, I mean, it would bring me to tears immediately. 
uh, is Christmas of 2006. Um, she hadn't said a word in several months just because she couldn't communicate anymore. Um, my birth mother had a history of just only coming over on the holidays and at some point during that day on Christmas of 2006, my grandmother actually suffered her final stroke that would take her life, but nobody knew it because right. she was already kind of paralyzed from the previous strokes that she has had. And uh, she really wasn't with it much anymore. But the last thing she finally spoke, this is the last words she said. Uh, my mom's name is Delilah, and she said mm-hmm. Good- goodbye, Delilah, oh. and, as she was leaving. And when she left, my mom said she sobbed all the way home uh, because she could tell that she didn't look good. And we found out the next day uh, because she wasn't able to eat or swallow or, or breathe really well. We had to call 911. But bottom line is, is she got taken to the hospital. My birthday is on December 29th. Um, apparently she had suffered just a major stroke to the point where she was going to be a vegetable to for, for the rest of her life. And she had put in uh, a, in her last rites basically with, with my grandfather that, uh, if I ever get to be uh, a vegetable or not able to care for myself, you know, don't hold on to me. And right. uh, it was the hardest decision he ever had to make. And um, yeah, so on, on, on my birthday, it was announced that she wasn't going to make it and that they were bringing in hospice. And she lasted around about two weeks and uh, three days before their 37th uh, wedding anniversary, um, she passed away at, at home. Um, wow. Yeah, it was sad. And, um, uh, heavy. It is. And, you know, I'm sharing that for the first time publicly with a lot of people. But right. that's why, like, you know, yesterday when that story hit me so hard, it was like, okay, well, not only was, was I a fan of his work, that's a, that's a subject matter that hits really close to home. Right. Because I had to watch someone that, raised me go through it and how hard that was. Yeah. I feel for you, man. I really do. That's, I can't imagine. All right. So let's, let's move on. Uh, (laughs) Do you need to take a minute or are you all right? No, I'm all right. I'm all right. So okay. all right. we're here to talk Easter eggs, uh, movie mistakes. Uh, Brandon, you did a lot of research. And um, why don't you kind of lead us into. There's a lot of information and there was a lot more wrong with this movie than I had ever imagined there would be. Like watching the movie sins when they counted 99. I mean, there were more, but they took a few off for murder, you know? And so I'm like, oh, I never, I like, I, I've never been super critical and I get a lot of shit for this because like, I'm a fan of the DC movies as much as those get, you know, a lot of people give them shit for 
what they are and whatnot, but I've never been super critical to like paying attention to these kind of things. I kind of just get lost, you know, in the story and the movie and what's going on. And I don't notice these things, but watching, um, watched a few videos to see what kind of mistakes were made during this movie. Um, one of the first ones that came up was during the, um, the hedge scene when Lori and Annie and um, uh, Linda were walking down the sidewalk and then Linda breaks off and then it's just Lori and Annie. Mm-hmm. And then they, you know, Lori sees Myers standing behind the edge, which well, that was one of the things that came up was how did Linda not see him too? Cause he was just standing there. But you mean Annie, he's standing and, well, that was one of the things that popped up in the movie sins is they were all three walking down the sidewalk and he was standing pretty visibly out from the hedge and nobody saw him standing um, there. I mean, that's easy to, it's easy to, you know, not like, that's more of like a, like a movie nitpick, I guess. But yeah, I, I, um, I, I would definitely say that because, you know, we're, we're taught in film school that, um, and for for the record, there's going to be some of these that I call bullshit on, um, just just for the record, uh, because in a movie world, if it's not on camera, you're basically mm-hmm. you're 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 filling in a gap on what could be behind that fourth wall. Um, okay. In this sense, our in this sense, particularly them walking down the street, they're the only uh-huh. things besides the houses and trees and leaves and just whatever's in that frame. That's really the only thing that exists in the world. Yes, we know that there's imminent danger out there. We know that. But at the right. same time, we don't see it. So we're focused on them walking down the street, which is why when jump scares happen, why they're so jarring and scare the shit out of us is because... They didn't exist on that screen before they popped into frame and bang, oh, there they okay. are. So yep, in, in my mind, I never consider that as a movie mistake or a, a fuck up or anything because here's my thought process. Okay, okay. maybe Myers was watching them the whole time. Mm-hmm. Or maybe he just happened to be watching them from inside the bushes saw when Linda broke off, Annie's reaching down into her purse, then he steps out from behind the bush, and now Lori sees him, and... Makes himself, yep. Exactly. So... See, that, my... make, that all makes sense, because a lot of, like, you're talking about, when you're able to break things down from a, you know, a filmmaker's perspective, you know, that does help, because a lot of the times when you're watching these videos and people are like, okay, so this is everything that's wrong with Halloween. And then they start talking about these things. I, you, you don't necessarily know what kind of film industry knowledge they have. So they're just kind of going off like, well, how did they not see Myers standing there? If he's standing there, he might not have been standing there the whole time. Like you just pointed out. And so that's you gotta, a great perspective to have. And also you got to keep in mind too. And I, and, and I'll try not to go too long on this. But you also got to okay. keep in mind, too, that you have roughly 
in a horror film, especially back in 1978, you have 85 to 90 minutes to get your movie all the way through, start to finish. So to sit there and spend all this time adding those little elements to, you know, you would, you could probably take three to four minutes of screen time to show all this and why she wouldn't have saw him because of the scenario I just laid out him step watching him from behind the bushes where the, nobody sees him. Then he sees that Lori is, is focusing down the street. Well, he fixated on her anyway. Now he's going to step out just so that she sees him and knows that I'm following you. Um, you know, the whole thing was very cat and mouse and he was fixated on her. Um, Right. From the moment she dropped the key off at the Myers house. And that was the moment where she became a marked target. And anybody connected right. to her was going to lead him to her. So he was very much a exactly. lurker and a watcher throughout the film. My point is, is uh, I don't look at that as a mistake. I look at that as, okay, the first time that we saw him looking back at her, that's the first time he stepped on screen. So before that, the reason she didn't see him, he wasn't there. Mm-hmm. Well, that makes sense. Um, and that's like, oh, man, that's a... See, this is why you're smarter than me, because I would never have put that together. <laughs> I would never have thought about it that way. And obviously, you know, it's very possible that a lot of people who make these movies and put that out there might not necessarily think about that in the same way either. True. And so, but yeah, that makes a lot of sense. But, okay, so what that leads into is another question that you can answer from your experience making films. So do you know, um, was Carpenter the one behind the camera or was somebody else doing the filming and he was watching on a monitor? Because one of the, one of the mistakes that um, I never knew about until yesterday was when Carpenter was smoking a little too close to the camera and it you actually see cigarette smoke kind of wisp in front of the, the hedge there. Um, it's barely noticeable, and if, if that wasn't pointed out, I would never have noticed. And so do you know if that was one of his things? Was he, you know, behind the camera? Was he standing? Or was he kind of sitting back watching? Um, I mean, to for, for me to have firsthand knowledge, I... I... Obviously, I would not know that, but I I can kind of kind of tell you from a low budget perspective because that's where a lot of my expertise in filmmaking is is from a low mm-hmm. budget is from a low budget perspective. I worked on a lot of low budget indie movie sets where there's a lot of guys wearing multiple hats doing multiple things. Why? Because every minute, every hour, every second you're on set you're costing a day rate to somebody. If you're, if you're a non-union uh, shoot, which um, if they got Donald Pleasance, they would have had to have been a union shoot. Um, uh-huh. So the fact is you're paying those, uh, those crew members and those cast members, you're paying them a union day rate, uh, a flat fee. And look at it this way. If 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 I hire you for five hundred dollars a day to come out and wrangle and pull cable on my set, all right, and we've allocated we're gonna shoot scene A, scene B, scene C today. And I got you for I got you for five hundred dollars, but I only have you for one day. 
and I got you for 12 hours because that's a that's a typical shoot day. I got you for 12 hours, and whatever I don't get done, um, I've got to pay to bring you back and reschedule that, which is ultimately going to cost me more money. And if right. I don't have that money, well, now I'm fucked. So a lot of times in indie filmmaking, people wear multiple hats and multiple ways to shoot things, to keep things moving because of that what I just said, you know, it's a financial issue. It is a, you know, we can't go over issue because if, especially if you're a union shoot, if you go over time, um, you're, you're, you're in a world of hurt, especially with fines and penalties. Now that's the way it was 10 years ago. Now at this point from with the way I understand in this day and age, uh, if you do a union shoot at the end of your 12 hours or whatever you've allocated that you're going to be on that set, uh, you can't even work one minute or one second past that allocated time. You're able to just sit your shit down and walk off. You know, that's, from what I understand, that's the law yeah. now. So to, again, not not to go off too much off on a tangent and off in the weeds, but to kind of answer your question is, do I think that he was behind the camera, running the camera? I'm sure there was some, I'm sure there was an element of that. Um, a lot of, okay. a lot of what, he probably did. He probably went and shot a lot of second unit stuff with not a lot of crew people um, and brought her back to the set for just those pickup shots. Uh, I would, I would oh, venture, okay. I would venture to guess that could have happened. Um, it could have been on a day where they were, where they were crewed down very small um, where they didn't have a lot of people. Uh, I mean, hell from what I understand their, their, uh, their trailers that they went and changed in and got made up in was in the back of a fucking Winnebago. So it's like, it's not, it's not like they had millions of dollars just laying around to just blow money on shit. Anytime they wanted, they had to be very, uh, frivolous and, and, and frugal about their spending because they didn't have any extra funds to, to, to go about it. So, um, and again, there's a there's a million things going on in every second of every shot, and just to get what the people see as far as a finished product um, for ninety for a ninety minute film, um, there's sometimes you know if you're on a super tight budget, there's a two week uh, production time, and so you're moving extremely fast. And they've said it on many documentaries, we shot very fast, so. Is something like a cigarette going to get in the shot or a cigarette smoke? Yeah, but again, until somebody really pointed it out, until John himself pointed it out, um, I had never noticed it either. Um, I discovered it right. about 15 years ago, I think. Um, and yeah, that's as in, and that makes a lot of sense because the possible with you know just bringing back, like you said, her to do a different shot later, which could explain other. Um, I guess quotes, you know, continuity mistakes, you know, given reshoots where, you know, one minute it's sunny and they're walking down the street. And then by the time, you know, Lori gets to her house, it looked like it just got done raining and everything's wet and this and that. So just I can that explain one that question right there. I can oh, explain can that. Well, yeah. that's, an, that's another one that's on the list down there that I found. So just <laughs> let's go ahead and cover it now. <laughs> yeah, no, um, a, a lot of times, um, now again, we don't know in what relation, I mean, we kind of have a vague idea now that we've, that we have all this research at the tips of our fingers now, 
But I mean, and, right. and, and uh, when it comes to a production schedule and what they had lined up to shoot one day, we don't know um, from one day to the next what they were shooting. We don't know because we don't have mm. that production schedule in front of us. But right. for, for instance, here, here in Florida, um, if you shoot a, a daytime outdoor scene, um, you really only have a, a few months to do that effectively. And you've got to do that between the hours of 9 a.m. and 11 a.m. Realistically. Because, okay. uh, first and foremost, the sun changes so drastically throughout the day. I mean, think about it. Uh, oh. you, the, the sun's going to be one direction first thing in the morning. It's going to be another direction by noon. And when it gets up to noon and it's directly over you, it's not going to be the most right. fl- flattering to look at. So you want to make sure that you get a majority of your, you want to do all your wide shots first, and then you want to move to your mediums and then your close-ups. And you want your close-ups to be uh, completely done by the time that that sun gets nasty. Uh, and right. then on And then on top of it, the other thing that you have to worry about is, okay, maybe, maybe they shot, say, uh, them leaving the school at four o'clock the previous day, but they were going to go shoot the other sidewalk scene the next day because they were going to be moving into a house that they had uh, the okay or the clearance to shoot in the, inside that house the very next day. And I'm just, I'm throwing out hypotheticals here. Um, right. But it makes sense. Yeah. So like, let's say the Doyle house was across the street from that sidewalk that they're walking on. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, if I'm only, and, and we're taping this on a Tuesday, so, okay, yesterday I was at the Haddonfield High School. Today I'm going to be shooting all the interiors of the of the Doyle house, and I got to get the sidewalk shot. Well, there's a sidewalk right over here. We'll just, we'll, we'll, we'll cover that shot when we go to the Doyle house, uh, blah, 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 blah. So, okay, right. the previous day they leave the school. They leave that shot 3, 4, 5 o'clock in the afternoon, whenever it was shot, okay? It didn't rain a drop, but let's say during the middle of the night, it poured rain. Well, now I'm shooting in that location that I just talked about the very next day. Well, now that sidewalk's going to be wet. So, I mean, you have this all the time. It happens all the time. It's not just isolated with just Halloween. Right. That makes sense. Um, one of the next ones that we, that we found was... Um, I had never noticed it before either, man. And if I wouldn't have watched this video, I probably never would have. There is a um, a shot uh, in the kitchen at the beginning of the movie when uh, six-year-old Michael, you know, reaches in, grabs the butcher knife, closes the drawer, and then starts to POV walk through the kitchen to the dining room, obviously to go upstairs. But briefly, you can look off to the right and you will see the camera shadow and you know, a nice big block of a shadow. That's obviously not the shape of your head unless you're a Lego. And so that was a, that was a quick mistake that had made a, a top mistake list. Now and, the one that yeah. good. No, no, I was, was, was going to go into the next one. Yeah? No, no, I was just going to say on, onto that, um, Again, they you know when, when you're doing a a POV shot and you're on on that low of a budget and you're moving as fast as they are, I mean, 
they were literally, they were rearranging the inside with the lighting as they were coming around the house. So when they went into the house, and they did it all in one take. I mean, just think about that for a second. Normally when we see a scene play out, it's from multiple camera angles. This was the first of its time where they just did everything in one continuous, fluid, uh, steady cam shot. And right. So I, I'm not surprised um, that they caught that shadow. I mean, it's it's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's been times where um, I've cheated a little bit in, in, in my career where I told the editor, I'm like, hey, do we have another shot of that angle there or another shot of what I'm trying to go to? And they'll, he'll say, yeah, I got this one over here. I'm like, okay, well, there's a mistake right here. I don't want anybody to pick that apart, so just cut away to something else. But in or, But – in that sense, they had planned that entire shot to be one continuous shot because it was something different. They wanted to hook you in immediately that this was something different. And right. in order for that to fully play out, it had to be one continuous shot. It had to be something different than a movie audience has ever seen before. And they didn't have the luxury of time and to go back and... And probably reshoot it. And they probably didn't even catch it, to be honest with you. Right. And, you know, like, the way that you've explained that is very similar to the way that we explained, like, with the cigarette smoke. There's a, there's a few others that are basically the same thing. So we don't even really have to go into explaining them. Like, right. Loomis in the phone booth, like you said, everything was moving so fast, you know on such a low budget, you only have so much time. And so when Loomis is on, you know, he's in the phone booth and I believe he's on the phone with what Smith's Grove. He, uh, you can see twice that, um, you can see crew members moving around. And the first one's really hard to notice. You can, it kind of looks like somebody's running and then you catch it. But then when it pans around to where he comes out and then starts to walk to the truck, you can see a, uh, a pretty big dude standing, you know, in the reflection. And obviously, like you said, moving so quick, stuff like that's going to happen. So you probably don't have to go into too much details. On yeah. And like that and stuff like that, it happens. And um, mm-hmm. I can tell, I can tell a quick story. I was shooting, uh, I was directing a, a, a television pilot back in 07. And, okay. um, you know, we had to go back and reshoot one side of the angle um, on one side of the or one angle from one side because we were shooting. Um, we did it, it was a scene at a high school, but we couldn't really use the high school because of clearance and permits and shit that they did. I mean, right. getting inside of a high school now, good luck. But even back then, it was difficult. <laughs> so we had to find a place that resembled that could be believable as a high school for an exterior and the place that we were allocated to shoot was the Hard Rock Cafe corporate headquarters that was a glass building. But in order for us to be able to shoot there, we had one of our producers that actually worked there as a daytime job so she could get certain privileges for us. That's the only reason we were able to shoot there. But uh, she was able to get clearance for us to shoot a section of the building but it had to be a certain section of the building from one certain area that nothing else could be visible. 
So we literally, we had to shoot an exterior wide shot somewhere else. And then to move into our close-ups, we were able to use that part of the building because we didn't have clearance <laughs> on the other parts of the wide shot that we got. So we couldn't spend a lot of time there. We kind of right. we kind of had to what's called the, the the term is go go uh, gorilla style and just do it. You know, just do it now. If we get caught, we'll we'll ask for forgiveness later. Uh, but the well, important thing was that makes sense. A, they did. The... Go ahead. Sorry, no. I was going to say I, I've heard that before. They had to do the same thing with uh, Texas Chainsaw. Yes, exactly. When recording the highway scenes, they had to they had to go gorilla on it. Yeah. So, um, to to make a long story short, is we um, when we moved into the close-ups, we were in that section of the Hard Rock. When we got onto the male actor, like we had a crisscross shot. You know, we had two cameras going, one on the female, one on the male. And we all looked at the frame. We had two camera operators. We had the DP, that director of photography, to make sure that all the lighting, everything looks good. And then, of course, you had uh, the first AD, which is, you know, running speed, running time, coming back to me saying, hey, uh, just check that shot, make sure everything looks good. So you had multiple people check the shot and check the frame. Right. We didn't see shit. None of us were alarmed. We were moving quick. It was in the middle of the summer. It was 100 degrees outside, so it was hot as balls. We got our, we got our actors melting, basically, in, in makeup, and we're trying to get this scene off, and we're, we cleared frame. The first AD, myself, the DP, both camera uh, people, um, producers, everybody cleared the frame. It, it was, you know, it was, it was all well and good, so... What ended up happening was, is my editor, and he noticed this only because we ran um, a, a test scene, um, a test screening for the other producers to look at the scene to make sure it flowed correctly, make sure the performances were on. So a lot of us were in this post-production field. Now, this is two months after the film had closed or after the production had wrapped, we were full, full well in post-production. So what ended up happening was, is um, we screened it, both producers signed off on it. We were cool. We had to go in and make a couple tweaks to the scenes. I was sitting with the editor. The editor noticed something and he goes, wait a minute, Chris, what, what is this right here? And he zoomed in on it and saw it just enough of, of the reflection we saw the top of the boom mic operator's head with the boom pole uh-huh. coming in right above. And then now all of a sudden it stood out like a sore thumb. I'm like, how in the fuck did seven people not see that? And we just watched the scene <laughs> oh. in, it, in its entirety. And what right. we had to do, we didn't have the ability to map things out and get rid of things back then. Um, mm-hmm. So they were even less in 1978. So they probably caught it at later down the road like we did maybe in post and said, well, we're all out of money. We can't go back and reshoot it or we can't go back and get permits to go back and redo that. Uh, we can't get right. Donald Pleasance back to go back and reshoot that scene to, to fix one little mistake. We're just going to leave it and say, fuck it. And let's just hope nobody sees it. And that's kind of what we had to do. And uh, we had to live with it because we were out of money. So again, I'm only painting a picture. That's probably what happened. If, if I had to guess. 
Well, and that makes a lot, I mean, that is a perfect way to explain it. I mean, it satisfies my curiosity about why a lot of these things that I have written down here would happen, you know. Um, now, not having much of a budget really would hamstring you, especially in 1978 when, you know, there's not a, it's not as, uh, there's not as much, I don't know what the word would be, but like, a lot of things that are done now you couldn't do back then or wouldn't even know how to do back then technology-wise, this and that-wise. And so it it would make sense that, um, you know, budgets and actors and all that kind of stuff, something like that. And see, the thing is, is that movie came out in 78. I was born five years later. It literally, I found out yesterday. <laughs> you know about a lot of these that I would probably never have noticed, and so you know forty years it took me thirty five to catch it well it's it's easy for like like that phone booth scene that you're talking about mm-hmm. I mean again, you gotta slow it down, you gotta really look for it, and then once right. you find it, yes, it will stand out like a sore thumb every time you watch it but right. i ven- I venture to guess because you were so invested in the story and what was going on and what he was doing on that phone and what he was mm-hmm. go- about to discover that everything else is kind of doesn't, you know, nothing else matters because you're so invested exactly. into what Donald Pleasance was doing. So a lot of times a good actor, a good scene or a well-constructed scene um, or a well put together storyline to really hook your attention um, you don't right. pick up on a lot of those things. Now, with that being said, as you watch and watch and watch and watch these things and you, you become invested as a fan is really when you start to notice mistakes. And I, I don't mean this, what I'm about to say, in a derogatory type of way. Hell, I'm a nerd mm-hmm. myself. But you had some nerds well, sitting down, breaking down every little thing to try and find little things like that. And oh, I'm, oh yeah. I'm glad he did, but or she. I, I'm glad that they did, but at the same time, I'm like, you know, these little glitches like that never took away from my enjoyment of the film because, again, something like that, I, I really wasn't picking up on because I was so invested into uh, what Donald was doing. Right, and it was it was a pretty dramatic, like to me anyway. I, like I love that scene just him coming out of the phone booth and the, just the way that the camera pans around and then, you know, sets up the, the pickup truck and all that. And as he's walking to it, like it was a really well done scene to where I would never have noticed. Like I'm always watching what Pleasance is doing. I'm not necessarily paying attention to the phone booth anymore. And so, yeah, that pretty much nails that right there. Yep. And so, all right, the next one that we got is uh, another one that I would never have noticed. But, um, and this is a, this one comes into more of a production standpoint. So you can, like, if you had people doing stunts or things like that, this would be a, a fun one to explain. Okay, so at, at the end of the movie, when Loomis uh, shoots Michael, and Michael is standing, um, you know, in the doorway, and then gets shot out onto the balcony, where he then falls off and lands in the yard. In that scene when he shot, 
and this also probably has to do with you know different camera angles and takes and whatnot. But when he gets shot, he flings backwards, but then um, kind of rotates 180 as he gets to the ledge, and then would seemingly, 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 sorry, look like he would fall off, you know, going forward face down. But then when they drop back and you're watching him fall from the ground angle, he is falling back first to where it even looks like there isn't much of a ledge, almost kind of like he's walked, like he's on a platform and then just kind of steps backwards, falling off the ledge. And so that was one of the things that was brought up, the way that he spins forward but falls backwards, but also looks like he's kind of just walking straight off the balcony opposed to it being like a three-foot barrier on it. And so if you, like, is that, that probably just has to do with the stunt itself, I would imagine. Yeah, I mean, there's a there's a couple things. Uh, first and foremost, anytime you have continuity errors as far as positioning, uh, to, to be honest, oh. Sorry about I, that. No, no problem. What what type of dog do you have? Um, that uh, the one that you can hear. He's an asshole. He's um. His oh, I've never heard of that breed. You've never heard? Oh, you never heard of the asshole? No, no. <laughs> yeah, he's an asshole breed. Oh no, he's um he's a Chorky. We've had him for three years now. Back before we bought a house, we lived in a duplex, and wanted to have a dog, but there was weight limits. Um to what you could have in duplex apartments or whatnot. And so we got we got him. He's a, a little, like, 30-pound yipper. Maybe not even that. Probably say 20. Um, but, yeah, he's a black chorky. And um, my other dog is a rescue. Her name is Leia. She's a white lab that we she a princess? Uh, rescued from the Humane Society. She is my princess. Yeah. There you go. <laughs> yeah. And so she... She's very skittish, and she doesn't make a lot of noise until Opie starts barking, and then you just hear the whoo. Oh my God. And sure. Opie will bark, in, and we live on the corner of a street to where there's always traffic, and he's always going off on something. Yep. But yeah. So, all right. Um, okay, we were talking about the balcony scene. So, yeah. It's. It's uh, it's definitely happening a lot, happening a lot more today, and I think a lot of it today is really lazy filmmaking. Back mm-hmm. then, I don't think that was the case. Um, I think a lot of it was, hey, we don't have a lot of money, we got to get this shot done. Um, but nothing, nothing takes me out of a moment in a movie worse and worse than. When you have an actor one way and you have a framing one way and their hand or their arm or their leg or their head is looking some direction, then you cut to another shot and it's completely opposite or changed. Um, it's very uh-huh. jar. It's very jarring. And it happens a lot more in today's filmmaking, especially in. I'm not talking about stunt related scenes. I'm talking about just casual conversation scenes today where you will have somebody in one scene taking a sip of a drink and in the next cut it's not even in the frame and I'm going wow that was a fuck up you know someone really fucked up on that um yeah. when it 
when it comes to something like this, um, the only way to have done that correctly, which I'm sure they didn't have the budget for, and again, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm just hypothetically guessing here, is right. um, they shot practically in a house. They were not on a soundstage. They were in a real house. They could not right. afford to go remove that three-foot lift or that uh, balcony um, mm-hmm. to make it more of an open platform to where maybe where he just busts through it. Like in this day and age, you got an extra $10 million. Uh, he goes through, crashes through uh, a plank of wood on the balcony, and then he falls 20 feet, whatever it is. Right. Um, back then, they're like, okay, well... Let's get his shot this way of him going out out the door on the pickup. We'll just get him falling off the balcony. And that's really like a lot of times I, I know I know I've done it. But there's uh-huh. times when you have actors or in this case, a stunt person. And I think a lot of this was Tony Moran at this point um, yeah. for these shots. You have somebody that. And let's face it. You know, you're making a theatrical release film, whether it's low budget or high budget, you're still getting a distributed film in the theaters. A lot of times I've worked with actors where I've had great, very good improv actors where they just they want to do the best job possible and they want to they want to fucking kill it because they want to steal the show. Um, (laughs) And um, Tony Moran. and, And again, I've never. I've never met the guy. I I mean, I've met him at a convention once, but I never really talked to him about this. But, but if mm-hmm. I had to, but if I had to guess what happened was, is like, they're like, all right, you know, we're going to get the shot of you flying out the flying out this. And he was probably trying to impress, you know, you got, you got the director, you got some producers there. This is going to be a theatrical thing. Him not thinking the pickup shot, the way he's got to position himself. So when he goes out one way, hey, it looks fucking great. Looks spot on. Looks wonderful. Okay. Right. Well, the only way to get that on the reverse shot would be have him continuing in that motion, going over, and then maybe forward, forward, flipping over the railing, and then down all the way to the ground. Why they didn't do that, I don't know. Uh, I'll I'll never know. But if I had to guess, they had a plan laid out of, Hey, this is how we're going to do this. And maybe they shot the landing first and then shot the other right. part second. We don't know, but ultimately, yeah, that, that ended up as a goof and it, it, it is a little jarring, but I was so invested into him being shot that I didn't pick up on it for a long period of time. And normally I pick up on those sort of things, but, uh, right. I would definitely have to agree with there's there's definitely there was definitely a, a a ramp there or something. Yeah, something for him to just walk off backwards because I mean if you think about it, I mean it would make sense that they would have been filmed obviously at separate times, but like with him going off backwards, it does it would it does look better with him laying on the ground, laying the way that he is, which is how it would look if he fell from his back opposed to doing a front flip and his body being turned 180. Um, so I could definitely see, you know, that being planned to where this is how it, he's going to fall. We want it to look this way. And then, you know, 
Tony putting a little extra sauce on the performance and not necessarily positioning himself in the correct way because it did look good and I would never I didn't really pick up on it right away either and so that well the last thing that you're thinking from a performance standpoint or from a director standpoint is okay well um okay we're you know we're 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 finishing up this take okay cut okay let's move camera in position to get the next take we're not thinking about the way your position of your body was a lot of times especially oh, okay. especially in a real low budget setting maybe you're pressed for time or here's the other thing they had to perform a stunt okay him going mm-hmm. off off a balcony maybe him doing a front tumble and flip forward maybe that wasn't as safe as him going right. back backwards and planting maybe he had never done it before i don't know but all i do know is there's probably a lot of reasons why they went in and i think safety is probably going to come into the biggest play um is because for for the simple fact that you have when he's falling and everything he's going to be fi- uh back planting maybe onto a padded foam mattress or something that he's landed on off camera but the mm-hmm. last thing you want to do as a as a low budget film um and I know I've been in this position before um you know of of actually worrying about this not you know like I've gotten sued or anything but the last thing you want is for any of your performers or any stunt that you're asking them to do to harm themselves in any way, because now you have a potential lawsuit and a, I mean, I know we're, we're going back 40 years. Maybe there, it wasn't as big back then, but I'm sure that there was, if somebody got paralyzed or turned into a paraplegic on a movie set, I'm sure there was rules and different things and lawsuits. Even back then lawyers weren't invented 20 years ago. So, uh, point is, is, the last thing you want to do is have your production or have your film, your vision locked up in a court case for several months or several years. Well, yeah, and I, I know that, like, I, people are more critical. And like you said, there's a lot of people, you know, that sit around and legit look for these kind of mistakes. I doubt that, you know, back in 1978 when this movie came out or whenever it came out on release, people are sitting at home being like, man, I got to find everything that's wrong with this movie. It's easy to, you know, nitpick at things 40 years later when, you know, the landscape has changed so much to where it's, you know, people sit around and look for these kind of mistakes and then make videos about them and point them out and all this and that. But I'm pretty sure, I know that when I first saw the movie, I wasn't, I was more wrapped up in what I was seeing opposed to being like, you know, I wonder what, you know, kind of uh, production errors are. But that's also not my mindset when it comes to movies either. I'm, I'm pretty casual in my viewing Yeah, where and I just kind of sit back and enjoy it. Exactly. And that was going to be my next comment is, you know, again, going back to it's easy for me to sit down from having a background in making movies and working on movie sets. I can tell you right now, I could be one of those guys that can sit down and pick apart every single little thing. And I know I've done it from a from, in Halloween mm-hmm. 2018, just just breaking down the fundamental script. I mean, for God's sakes. Right. Uh, right, there's right, right. there's no excuse you get two years and three writers and 40 drafts and that's the best you come up with. I mean, that is just that's someone greenlighting shit and hoping that because of the franchise's name that's going to carry the weight of a bunch of lazy ass 
writing. Anyway, yeah, this isn't about that. Um, but no. <laughs> <laughs> I could sit down and I could break down and literally nitpick and pick apart every single little thing about every movie that I watch. But if that was the case, I would never watch television or movies ever again because I would never enjoy them. So yep, the joy would be gone. Exactly. So when I go back and I watch something that was very relevant into making me even want to pursue a degree in film, uh, which is Halloween and a lot of John mm-hmm. Carpenter's movies, I watched those movies for the enjoyment first. And because it was so entertaining and so different to, to things that I had watched, which is why we, we sort of gravitate, uh, to certain films in the first place. It's like either something revolutionary has been done that's that's never been done before and it's been done so well mm-hmm. that you're not paying attention to anything else. You're you're submersed. Um and a lot of times like you know, like I'm sure if we sat down um and not to get too far off in the woods here, but just as an example, you know, Terminator two is held up in very high regard over Terminator 1 just from the from a filmmaking standpoint and I can agree with a lot of that um but I'm sure if we sat down and really wanted to and do something like this a deep dive into everything that's wrong with Terminator 2 we can come up with a list just as big if not bigger because there's a lot oh, of se- there's oh, yeah. a lot of computer stuff involved so mm-hmm. um a lot of times I try to put that s- stuff out of my head Unless something is so jarring that it just completely takes me out of that moment where I'm submersed, I'm in your world, I'm forgetting that I have a world outside of this, I want to forget my mm-hmm. world for two hours and I want to be submersed and entertained, just entertain right. me Just entertain me for two hours. Now, if you do something that is extremely jarring to the point where from a performance or a dialogue or, or a, a big goof that... You know, I talked about earlier with the glass in one hand, the next cut it's not. Something like that's going to completely right. pull me out of the element. Yeah, there's, there's a problem there. But little things like this, I look at it as, man, that's just that's the business of the movie business when you have a mistake like we're talking about with the balcony. Right. And honestly, there's um, the last one. And this one, like, I don't... It makes sense to me. Like it almost, you know, in the sense of like a theater aspect. The next, um, the next and last one is um, there's a point in the movie where Lindsay's sitting on the couch. I believe it's when Annie's locked in, you know, the laundry room garage area, and Lindsay's sitting there. And I think the phone rings, and it's kind of panning around her, and then you can see the shadow of a of a crew member, uh, kind of, you know quickly trying to position themselves to get out of the camera. But like you, you barely see it because obviously they're going to be dressed in all black and their, their whole objective is to stay out of frame. But there's a point to where that camera's panning and you can kind of see the crew member quickly trying to get out of the way of the shot. And it's one of those one things that if it wouldn't have been pointed out, I wouldn't have noticed it either, but it's the same thing. Like when, you know, high school or, that would be my experience. There was a few like plays that I had worked on, on like a, a part of a tech crew with like staging and stuff like that to where, you know, you got to wear dark clothes and stay out of the way. But sometimes you are going to see it. 
Yeah. When they're, you know, when they move or whatnot. And again, going back, and I, I, you know, I, I'm really trying not to sound like a broken record here, but, you know, when <laughs> well, you're... that's kind of what these mistakes are. Yeah, but in, in a sense, it's like I, I'm feeling like I'm, you know, you did a lot of this research, and all I'm doing is I'm, I'm saying the same thing over and over again. But really, again, <laughs> we, we don't know in a sequence of when that was shot, uh, right. what, what time they were up against what the circumstances were, uh, mm-hmm. you know, uh, a lot of people think that they get a lot of practical sound and what we're hearing on film is just what they shot. Um, it's not oh. like that. It's not like that. Sound not on sound on a set is recorded separately. Um, yeah. So, so if I had, and, and then everything post-production is put in uh, to sweeten everything, sometimes ADR, which is automatic dialogue, replacement is is put in um but at the same time i can almost imagine because i know because i've done it is as they're panning over somebody the first ad second ad somebody is seeing that crew member they're like we're panning over get the fuck down and he's in the middle of getting (laughs) down as they're coming around and Maybe in the we don't know how many takes of that was or what take number that was. It, let's just say for for instance, that was the third take and that's all they had time to shoot. And let's say the first two takes, he's standing right in the middle of it. Okay, well you're obviously not going to use the first two takes because he's standing there. Uh, so by the third take, that's the best one you got of the three. I'm gonna I'm gonna roll the dice and I'm gonna use the best one I have because maybe I don't. I don't have it in the budget. I don't have. I mean, you got, we got to think they were shooting on 35 millimeter film back then to buy that film uh, by the foot to have it processed and colorized and all that stuff. It wasn't cheap back mm-hmm. then. It's not like today where right. everything's shot digitally and done on done in a hard drive where you got endless amounts of takes that you can do if you have the budget for it. But again, right. maybe because they were shooting in practical houses, maybe they only had a, a, a contracted time frame on that house and maybe they were up against the gun and they're like we we got to get this shot fuck you need to get out of frame and again right. this is just me just thinking of possibilities of what ifs and that's what this show is all about is maybe peeling back the curtain and getting a different perspective and that's all i'm trying to provide right but that's really all that i have that will go into for the mistakes um i did find a, you know several um easter eggy tidbits about the movie that you know kind of seem interesting to uh kind of um <clears throat> excuse me just to talk about some of the things that not necessarily were you know parts of the movie that were shot or not but don't sorry work just try to call um there was another video that um i had uh, watch that um, you had uh, you'd actually linked me on that we're talking about the things about Halloween that we didn't know. And generally, uh, you know, us being fans of the franchise, we probably know a lot of these already. Just like one of the first ones to talk about, um, people knew or people know that the movie was originally called The Babysitter Murders. Mm-hmm. But the one thing that I didn't know was I knew that um, Carpenter recorded the theme music pretty quickly but i didn't know um i actually i did kind of I, I do remember hearing that the theme was inspired by the exorcist 
but I didn't know that Suspiria was another film that he had drew inspiration for on that theme. But what ended up happening was, is he wrote the, he wrote the score to the film and either, and it was like two weeks that he had wrote it. But the reason why he had cranked it out so quick was that after he screened the film for a 20th um, century Fox exec, wasn't scared by the movie at all. And so basically what ended up happening is he went back in and then, um, wrote the score, put in all the musical elements to it, and that's what saved the film. Sure. And so that was one of those heroes. And uh, to, to be honest with you, I didn't know about The Exorcist or the Suspiria tie-in either, so that's news to me. Oh, yeah. Um, that's. Um, I thought I'd heard something about The Exorcist, and if you kind of go, like, if you listen to that theme, it is kind of similar in the... Um, it's not super complex. It's just kind of like the same notes kind of on a repeat. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the other um, Easter eggs that they had talked about was they knew that you. Um, it was almost like a little tell. Anytime somebody was about to die in the film, the music would come on and you would see a, ja- a carved jack-o'-lantern. So anytime somebody's about to die or Myers shows up, there's a carved jack-o'-lantern in the scene just pre Really? Yeah. Huh. Um, Interesting. And, and yeah, and that's just I, all these I got off of that um, that YouTube video that we talked about yesterday. For, for the record, um, I, I I didn't watch it because I was I was hoping that you would uh, <laughs> that you would get a few things and be able to ask me. So. Uh, oh yeah, I definitely did. I, uh, like honestly, like you sent the, the few that you sent. Like I watched it, talked, uh, and then I watched the next one. Uh, like I said, I was jacked for this. Um, the next thing was is that uh, John Carpenter was obsessed with Alfred Hitchcock. Um, that I was not aware of, but he named the names of the characters from the movie. Like he named Dr. Sam Loomis. He named him after uh, Marion Crane's boyfriend in Psycho. His name was Sam Loomis. Right. And the funny thing about that is, is Marion Crane was played by Janet Lee, obviously, which is uh, Jamie Lee's mom. Um, Tommy Doyle was named, uh, for the, the Lieutenant detective, uh, officer from the movie rear window. Yep. He, yep. I didn't know that he got Sheriff Brackett. Uh, Sheriff Brackett was named after the screenwriter or one of the screenwriters for the empire strikes back. I don't think that had really anything to do with Hitchcock or if he had ties to Hitchcock or whatnot, but that was the thing that they had posted. And that Michael Myers was named after the British. Uh, uh, Michael Myers was the British film distributor who had uh, got assault uh, assault on Precinct Thirteen um, out in distribution, and so that's where they said that that name had came from. And while I don't know 100%, you know, the accuracy of these claims that I am claiming, but that's uh, the information that I have found. Um, the movie set up the unintentional oh no the movie set up the if you have sex and die cliche oh yeah which we see which we see in i mean anything nowadays from friday 13th to scream and all those that it and that he said that it was completely unintentional that the that only a bookworm who couldn't get a date would get out alive and that he um named his uh, he named Lori after his um, 
ex-girlfriend, which I don't think he expected the movie to kind of be what it was. But yeah, his um, his uh, ex-girlfriend was immortalized in becoming one of the iconic final girls, which is kind of like a, oh shit. Um, since the movie was filmed in California during the summer, mm-hmm. they had to bring in shitloads of bags of dead leaves. And so that's why a lot of the times when they're walk- like they're walking through the yards or whatnot, you know, grass is green, trees are green. Um, but you got those brown leaves, to- though. <laughs> yeah, they, they brought they brought it. They had to bring in bags and bags of uh, leaves, and that uh, carpenter wanted to do makeovers on the trees, but it wasn't in the budget. Yep. To do them, so and, that's why. Um, another little tidbit, and if you're going there, I'm sorry, I'm I'm kind of spoiling it for you. Is after Don't they be. would. After they would get the shots that they would get of the leaves, they would go through the scenes after they, they would they would yell cut and they would pick up the leaves and reuse them for other scenes because they were too broke oh to have a leaf budget in the uh, in the budget. So, yeah, <laughs> no, that that wasn't on the list, but that that just makes that even more. God, could you imagine? I couldn't imagine that would suck. Be like, all right, you know, scenes done pick up all the leaves we uh we need them for the next shot yep i know i hey i've i've been there um so when (laughs) when i heard deborah hill talking about it in one of the specials at one point i actually i started laughing i was like yeah you know uh, i i've never had to recycle leaves before and and anything i've done but i've had to recycle things because i didn't have the budget for something else you know so i've i've been there right um so the uh, the next one is is that the Myers house um, was actually abandoned. Um, that house was um, the Myers house was really abandoned, and what ended up happening is they had to go in and actually kind of clean up the place a little bit before using it for filming inside. That um, I guess it had been run down pretty bad, so they didn't have to do a whole lot, but they actually did have to clean it up to make it a little bit better inside for when they were uh, doing those um, takes that I hadn't, I didn't know that that house was actually abandoned and now it's what I actually heard uh, and, mm-hmm. and, and going with that is they actually shot all the rundown stuff first mm-hmm. and uh, got all those scenes done and then they went and cleaned it up and shot the beginning. Okay. We'll see. Yeah, and see, that makes sense. Um, a lot of these things were just in that like ten minute video where yep. they they didn't really go in depth on, but I was going to leave the in depth things to you because um, I'm sure that even from a production standpoint, like you just said, you would know more of these things on there. Well, the next I mean, that they had talked just about, oh. just just real quick. I mean, just I mean, I mean, just think sure. about it. And this shows that you know things are shot out of order all the time. Uh, oh yeah. Which, which is what I was trying to get about on the stunt thing earlier, or the wet driveway versus not not wet. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, but, you know, the, uh, if you think about it from this perspective, it's much easier, like, if you're having to, if you have a part of the story, which obviously we did, where mm-hmm. the Myers house was abandoned for 15 years while everyone moved out and all the, the travesty happened, he was locked away for 15 years, the house is untouched, mm-hmm. um, been abandoned, it's much easier to shoot it in that condition first than it is to fix it up, shoot everything that's pretty, right. but just because this is going to happen at the beginning of the film, and then 
deconstructed to make it look run down and old when, okay, um, they didn't have a whole lot in the budget for production design and uh, set right. design. So it makes uh, makes perfect uh, perfect sense that they saw it like it was and said, hey, first of all, it's a perfect house. Second of all, this is already run down, so now we don't have to dress the fucking set. Um, we only have to dress right. it once, and that's when we have to shoot the beginning of the film. So, And we only have to redo parts of it because of the way our shots are laid out. So, um, no, it makes perfect sense, to, at least to me. Oh, yeah. That it does to me, too. I mean, there's no reason to create extra work for yourself, especially when there's not much of a budget to do so. Right. Um, the next cool thing was, is, I mean, and this makes complete sense why you would do it this way. Um, but during the, uh, scene where, when Michael, you know, cuts her arm and she falls over the stairs and then is falling down the stairs that, um, Carpenter had the camera attached to a bungee and then dropped it to where, you know, it did its thing going down, but it actually wouldn't hit the ground, um, like, I didn't know that, but it, it, it makes sense that you would have it on some sort of apparatus to where it wouldn't damage an expensive camera. And I would almost uh, venture to guess, and again, I have no firsthand knowledge of it, but um, I, right. would also, I would also venture to guess that they shot it backwards, like they placed the camera on the stairs and then just lifted it straight up, and when it came up to the top of the stairs, they grabbed a hold of it, so just so that they weren't... right taking a chance of breaking a camera and that's at least that's that's how i would have shot it well yeah and that 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 seems to be the smart way to do it be like start it from the bottom and bring it up instead of risking it dropping and actually breaking that uh obviously yeah when you have a, a budget of what they had the last thing you need to do is break a camera so doing it in reverse actually makes more sense but yeah they they had it on a bungee um the next thing they talked about was the Myers mask. If you've listened to this podcast at all, you really already know the story of the H1. That's the hockey mask, mask. right? Yeah, it is. The, oh, I thought it was the. Um, I thought it was the pretty girl face mask. Right. Um, oh, shit. But, <laughs> but yeah, we. I mean, we already we already know the story of the H1 mask. Um, if you don't. I mean, if you want to go into it, you can, but I'm pretty sure you have an episode dedicated to it somewhere yeah. about the, and the Shatner conversion there. And the story's been told 150 million times. Yeah, if you don't know, then I don't believe you. Um, then the next thing that was on there was um, they didn't they didn't really have like a wardrobe. I guess you could say they didn't like make costumes or do anything like that. That um, Lori's wardrobe was actually purchased from J.C. Penney, and I just saw this just now, but um, Jamie Lee Curtis actually spent a couple hundred dollars herself and bought all the clothes that she wears in the movie. That She bought them at J.C. Penney. That's awesome. And so... And now... I said, that's awesome. And then now, 40 years later, J.C. Penney is on the verge of going out of business. <laughs> Everything is going out of business, man. Like I just, I was driving by Shopco. Shopco going out of business. Uh, Sears is going out of business. Like we're not going to have anything left except for Walmart. Got Amazon. And Amazon. That's true. 
it's, it's only a matter of time before Amazon, like, and they probably already do have, like, legit, like, store locations where you can go inside. That's the only thing. I mean, everything's online, and I get that, but, you know. I'm old school, man. I miss Blockbuster. I miss being able to walk inside of a building and, you know, picking out my movies. Me too. Um, yeah. Uh, the next one, uh, Haddonfield uh, is actually in New Jersey. Yep. It's not in Illinois. Uh, Haddonfield is Deborah Hill's hometown where she she wanted to have – she named it after her hometown, but she wanted to do the unsuspecting – you know, sleepy neighborhood, and that's where it ended up in Illinois. And but, uh, con- congratulations for saying Illinois correctly. And most people say Illinois. And whenever <laughs> I whenever I hear that, it just uh, it's like nails on a chalkboard, man. It's like that's how I that's how that's how I feel about Oregon. Yeah, or you have someone that says, "Yeah, he went across the street instead of across." the street. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. I get you there's, on that. Um, there's no T on a cross. <laughs> uh, well, I think you got your point across. Um, <sighs> the next one, <laughs> just fucking with you. The next one um, is uh, the movie was uh, filmed on a $320,000 budget, which grossed $47 million in 11 sequels. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Carpenter, I, I, if I could be wrong, but it said John Carpenter, I think, was paid $10,000 for the movie. Sounds or about that right. His salary. Right. Um, which is just crazy. 320000 you know, seems like a lot of money, but even back then, but to gross $47 million. Well, now, I don't, just... I didn't, I didn't go into detail to see how long, like, if that's been from start to finish or if that's what that took back then. I didn't go into too much detail. I just wrote down gross forty-seven million. Yeah, no, that's. Um, I, I mean, you got to think about it. Like, a, like a lot of people will talk about all this money that Halloween twenty eighteen made, and I'm like, well, that's easy to get there when your tickets are fifteen to twenty bucks a pop, you know. And you that's know, the truth. It's, that's the truth. It's like when you go back in time, you know, forty-seven million would be the equivalent of what probably Halloween 2018 is today if you count in inflation and all that but just going right. back you know just going back to kind of compare $320,000 in 1978 I mean that, that was a lot of money you know uh, yeah That's it's insane yeah I mean it's you don't think of a million dollars in 1978 the same as you do in 2019 um million dollars you better have a lot more than that in the bank if you're planning on never working uh you know mm-hmm. ever again whereas in 1978 and you were 40 45 years old well you know you could get a million dollar inheritance and say well i can live the rest of my life on this and live very lavishly um now that's not so much but uh keep in mind halloween 2018 was made on a 10 million dollar budget and that's considered right. extremely uh, low budget for today's standards. Halloween really six, is. Halloween six was made on a five million dollar budget. Um, mm-hmm. So you go back to seventy eight on a three hundred twenty thousand dollar budget. That would probably be the equivalent of about two and a half to three million dollars today. Right, and I just looked it up right now. The value of one million dollars in nineteen seventy eight. 
1978, a one, uh, $1 million is compared compared today with the inflation and whatnot. Uh, in today's standards, that's a $4.045 million now. Okay. So basically, so three times. four times the amount. Yeah. Four times, yeah. yeah. So, okay, and so, so... And that's just $1 million to that. So I was being generous on what the 325000 would be today. So if we're talking about three times, right, but you four, four times, we're, we're talking about $1.2, mm-hmm. $1.3 million budget on if Halloween 1978 was made today. Right. And that's still insane. And you weren't far off with your with your guess. You were closer than what I would have been. But even still, think about that. Um, $47 million uh, back in 1978 would be the equivalent-ish of $180, million, $190 million now. Yeah. And what, what, what people also don't understand as well is like, you know, the, you know, when someone says, hey, it made $47 million, or uh, Halloween 2018 made $156 million or whatever it was, uh, I'll just round right. up, $160 million. Okay, well, $10, mm-hmm. million, $10 million of that comes right off the top. So, yeah, they, they think, oh, well, you know, if you take off the $10 million budget, they made $150 million. Well, you're not counting in the advertising budget and the social media budget and the marketing budget behind it. So you got to you know you got to add on an extra 25 30 million on top of that for all the marketing of that film. Uh, then all the right. press releases and things with Jamie Lee and all that stuff. So, you know, you you're really talking about maybe 40 million dollars on top of that uh 10 million. So now you're up to 50 million. It's still in the black. So I mean, I mean but when you, it sounds a whole lot less impressive when you say, well, we're only a hundred million dollars profit versus being a hundred and forty-five million dollars right. profit. Yeah, you play it up so it sounds better. I mean, no, like when you're talking about how much money goes into everything else that puts that movie out to where we can see it. Yeah, like it's going to sound a lot better if you say, "Hey, hell, we made 160 million, but instead of saying 110 million, you know what I mean?" Like. That makes that makes sense. Yeah. The the um, the last thing that I have from that video was they were watching the thing, which um, they talked. One of the things they talked about was how long that they focused on the intro to that movie, but they were watching the thing, which uh, John Carpenter ended up remaking, I believe, four years later. Yeah, it's kind of funny. Yeah, um, there's other there's other little tidbits that they talked about. Um, and I watched the movie Sins. That was mostly just picking apart the movie. But um, one of the things that they talked about is um, in the beginning when Myers killed Judas uh, back in 1963 was uh, 22 days before the JFK assassination. Mm-hmm. Um, you, you can see there. You can. I don't see it myself. So. But they say that you can see palm, you can see a palm tree um, when Lori's dropping off the key at the Meyer place. Yep, you can. And there is a there. I I never I didn't really look at it, but my monitor my second monitor is shitty. Um, the, the scene where Loomis and Doctor Wynn are walking out talking about how you know an APP can't stop a 
you know, can't stop anybody and how Myers was able to drive the what 150 miles or whatever it is and not be stopped. But Dr. Wynn in that, in that scene played by Robert Phelan was later played by Mitchell Ryan in Halloween six. And Mm -hmm. so even though he was briefly in Halloween one, he was brought back in character in Halloween six. And see, that's why, like when I look at Halloween six, I, I, and again, I'm not trying to get off on a tangent, but I just wanted to at least touch on this because a lot of people are like, how can you like a movie that has is that has an uncle impregnating its, you know, its, its niece. And I'm going, well, first of all, I don't like that part. <laughs> uh, you know, right. let's, well, no. let's, let's be honest. I don't like that part, but the little Easter eggs in Halloween six, the, the callbacks, the way they did it so mm-hmm. subtly and did it creatively, like the Dr. Wynn tie-in, I loved that stuff because as yeah. a as a fan, I already knew going into Halloween 6 when they said when he said Dr. Wynn, I was like, "Wait a minute. Is that the same doctor from the first one?" I was already thinking about it. So right. it was like little things like that when um you know, and then when Mrs. Blankenship says, yeah, I was babysitting him that night, you know, little little Mikey Myers that, that that lived across the street, and that's when the voice came. You know, and when, when, when you start hearing that stuff and you start putting the reasoning behind it, and then we pick up the shot of him walking across the street to his house when he was, a, when he was six years old, it's like, you know, you start thinking about all these little extensions to the story of like almost like behind the scenes type stuff, things that weren't happening that the camera didn't see. So uh, right. that's, that's why I hold Halloween six on top of the mask and the atmosphere and, you know, things of that nature. Uh, those are the other little things that I, the the reasons why I love that film. Yeah. I like, I didn't know. I, I never put that together myself. Um, and so when I read that last night I was like, Holy shit! That's, well, a, that's you, a super cool thing to have in there. You also like if you if you get to the point of of H six and seeing how Win is involved mm-hmm. in all this, it goes back and makes that line from part one uh, when Loomis is like, you know, maybe somebody around here gave him gave him lessons. You're like, well, Doctor Win did, right. obviously. You know, it yeah. really makes that make <laughs> sense. Yeah, and yeah, that connective tissue, I think. I mean, aside from the goosebumps it just gave me, uh, you know, can explain a lot of even how he got out in the first place. You know, um, there's, there's, um, that's pretty much it for all that. There's a few other things um, that we could talk about, but I'm not going to bring up some of the ones just because of things that we've already gone over, like um, shooting quickly, uh, lack of budget, um, other things like that. One of the things that was, was kind of funny, and I never noticed this either. I guess all the cars, I never paid attention, but the car, all the cars in the movie have California plates. Obviously I never being shot in California. Never thought to even look. <laughs> no, neither did I. Um, the funny, the the other one where you see Michael throughout the anytime you see him as adult, you know he has that mask on. But then there's the throw. There's the line later on when the hardware store gets robbed, which he's driving by. Um, that the store was robbed, the alarm's still going. That someone broke in and stole, you know, not 
knives, rope, Halloween masks, this and that, which would you would imply that Myers is the one that broke in and took them. But he, you know, either that or that alarm was going off all day. Which I don't know. I wasn't alive in 1978. I don't know how the alarm systems worked back then. It's very possible that thing just blared. Um, there's other little things, like yeah, we don't their, have their, uh, we don't have computerized dispatches uh, in 1978. <laughs> right. Yep. You have you have large uh, you have uh, loud sounding alarms. Mm-hmm. Um. So the other, one of the other ones that I never noticed either was uh just bad math. Um, Michael was six years old in the beginning of the movie. And then when mm-hmm. he breaks out 15, late, uh, 15 years later would make him 21 years old. If my math is correct. But in the credits, it says 23 year old Michael. And so, I mean, that's something that is just could be a typo. Well, also in the credits, they, they misspelled Myers too. Oh, they did. See, yeah. another thing I wouldn't have even, wouldn't have even noticed. It's M Y E R S, um, and in the credits, it's M E Y E R S. Those motherfuckers. Yeah. <laughs> For the longest time, when I was younger, I was like, "God, is there an E in here?" I mean, I see it right here, but um, a lot of the other things, there's a lot of continuity things, which we've sure. talked about on? potential re- uh, potentials. One of them. Um, so when Annie and Lori. You know they're they're smoking out in the land boat and they pull up to the hardware store. You know, and she's like, you know, get rid of it, hurry quick. You know, my uh, my dad. They which, pull up and which the plot doesn't just go away that quick. It does. No, it does not. It, it lingers. Does not. Um, it does, and uh, that makes me question his uh, ability to be a sheriff. You can't smell that. But so they're they're they pull up and they're talking to him. It's bright, sunny day. Everything. You know, you, I would assume it's midday. Uh, from the time that it took them to get from the hardware store to um, Tommy's house, I believe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's pitch black, and oh, yeah. I mean, it's that's another um, obviously probably another shooting um, things getting dark and all that well, they, kind of stuff. Um, they, they do that in this day and age, too. And I, that's just something... Oh, yeah. I, I mean, I get, uh, well, you know, it's it's time constraints or it's shooting schedules. I get all that. But if... Probably just got to be pacing as well, right? Yeah, but it, it, here's the thing. If, if, if you're supposed to um, stop by the hardware store late in the day... Because it's apparently, you know, obviously it's after school. It's you know, a right. few minutes, a few minutes before you're supposed to be at your house for trick or treating, and and like in real time, you really should only have like about twenty minutes of daylight left. You know, if if you're going to show them pulling up in the dark to the places that that they're supposed to be, so I, I would definitely, mm. I would definitely call that more of a more of a movie mistake. Uh, but okay. again, the, the, it's not isolated to just Halloween. I, I call that just someone not paying attention to practicals um, within the context of a scene. Um, right. You know, nothing jars me more than uh, even in this day and age watching a scene unfold, and someone's been driving and and supposed to be 
in a few minutes' time, and it's broad daylight in this scene, and they're pulling up to their their destination in pitch black. And I'm going, boy, that was a lot longer of a drive. I mean, you had to drive probably four or five <laughs> hours to drive 20 miles, you know. And and it exactly. happens. It happens in a lot of television shows that that I watch. Um, and it happens in a, a crap ton of movies now. And that's always dr- driven me so crazy. And this time, this time it's no different. You know, um, again, I, I forgave it a little bit more because I was so invested into the story being told, um, that until I got into film school, and really started paying attention to the construction of a scene. And I'm not here patting myself on the back, but in, in, in Halloween H35, oh, no. my, my fan film that I did, mm-hmm. um, we had a, a situation um, where you know the script was written and it went from point A to point B to point C to point D, and where you know, the whole purpose was to get everybody to the house for the Halloween party so Danny could come in, Dr. Whitfield could show up and, you know, have all hell break loose again. That was our goal. Um, But when we're filming all this stuff and got everything completed, I was sitting with my editor, Mark, who uh, he's a fantastic editor and he... uh, I'm watching it and I'm like, I'm having a lot of trouble with the transition from daylight to dark. And he's like, yeah, me too. And he said, I just didn't know if that's what you intended to jump time like that. I said, no, there's a lot of movies that do that nowadays. Just like I said, and I'm like, it drives me crazy. So if this is driving me crazy, why would I break my own rule like that? So I said, "We, we have to find something to insert something here to progress time. So um, I, I I haven't watched it in so long, so I, I'm a little foggy on the scene that takes place. But uh, what ends up happening is we cut from one specific scene to a shot of a jack-o'-lantern in the middle of uh, a field. And, and, and it's a it's a royalty-free clip that I had to pay for, but it's mm-hmm. a it's a shot of a jack-o'-lantern in the broad daylight. And it's a time-lapse jack-o'-lantern that takes it from daylight to dark. And then when it hits dark, now you can cut to the car pulling up outside in the dark. So I always appreciate those little elements like that, and that's paying attention to detail. Um, But Mark actually had the suggestion. He goes, I'm going to go and I'm going to look and see what I can find. Um, And he said, if I find something would you be willing to spend 30 to 50 bucks on a clip to seal the scene? And for me, it was worth it because I'm like, yeah, that's yeah. gonna, if, if I'm not, even I, even if I know that this is a fan film, there's going to be people that don't like my story because they, they like it in a very specific way because of them being a hardcore, whatever fan. So there's already going to be some people that are going to nitpick and pull apart, different things because it's a fan film we all do but at the end of the day i'm like if i can eliminate any additional criticism on my film and just make them pay attention to just the little details that were paid attention to and things were covered up 
the, the other criticism's not going to bother me at all because I expect it, if that makes sense. Right. Yeah. It does. Now, there's a, there's a few um, actual mistakes um, that, and they, they both kind of revolve around Tommy's house. So when they pull up to Tommy's house and you can see it off to the right, um, the front door has a, just a shitload of glass panels. Like it's, I don't know if it's the entire door, but the, the front door has glass panels. And then later on, it is a solid white door that has no panels on it, um, which I never noticed either. But the other thing that happened with that door is when Lori is running and Michael is close behind her and she wakes up Tommy, you know, open the door. Uh, she reaches to open the door and the door handle is on the right side. Right. But when Tommy comes down to open the door, he opens it and it's on the left side. Yeah. And so th not only does the door change from having glass panels, but then the door handle changes sides. And so that's what three, uh, three different doors potentially used unless they're shooting the interior of a different location for the inside. Yeah. that That's something I was going to say is uh, what, uh, what I think potentially happened is they got the approval to shoot exteriors at that house, but they didn't right. get, but they didn't get approvals to shoot the interiors and the interiors completely shot somewhere else. Makes sense. Uh, that's not too much of a stretch to think that they would do something like that. Um, the, the date on the tombstone above Annie says that Judas Myers was born November 10th, 1947 and died on, Halloween in 1963, which may, would make her 15, not quite 16 at the time of the death, and that everybody said she was 17. And I don't know how accurate that is, but that's one of those things that said. A lot I remember of pot, talking about her being 17. A lot of potheads back there, man. A lot of shrooms, a lot of acid. <laughs> Everybody's mind was baked. no way, man. Nobody could add or subtract. Well, that, they that, that they all knew how to print sense. money, though. Yeah, they did. Um, the pumpkin that Tommy's carrying in the beginning of the movie, um, or when he's leaving school, was pre-cut to where when he fell on it, it would it would bust open because him being so small, there's no way that he would. I can't imagine him busting that thing open like that. I mean, I'm pretty sure it would open, but they the the pumpkin was pre-cut for um, to make it crack open like the way it did. When Lori, when Lori is hiding in the bottom of the closet from Michael, you can see that there's a purple dress in front of the rest of the clothes. However, when she stands up to grab the hanger, uh, a pink sweater is is in is um, in front, only to be behind the purple dress again when she sits back down. Those aren't too big. There's just a bunch of these. Um, I never noticed it, to be honest with you. I never noticed it either. Um, when Annie goes to get her car keys, notice she goes through the backyard and goes to the front of the house as if the garage is in the backyard when we uh, see the garage is on the left side of the house. There's a scene where Tommy Doyle's looking out the window and he sees the sh uh, shape outside of the house across the street. The porch light is off and the jack-o'-lantern is not lit. When he attempts to show Lori the next shot of the house, the porch light is on and the jack-o'-lantern is lit. But who knows, that 
<laughs> that could be easily explained if somebody just went and lit the lit the jack o' lantern and turned on the light. Um, yeah, there's just a bunch of little nitpicky things like that. Uh, the young girl who walks up to the Myers house near the start from the from the view in the house, she reaches the door. The camera angle, uh, the camera changes angles, and then she's only halfway up the steps. Is there any um, any of the little things about the movie that you that you know that I haven't listed yet, or that you want to cover? Uh, I mean, not really. Um, and if so, I would know where to begin. We've covered so much, so we really have. Um, because there's a, there's a four pages, um, there's a revealing mistake. When Michael stabs Judith, he uses a rather large butcher knife, yet on her chest there are no wounds. It looks, it just looks like smeared stage blood, which also could be a budget thing. Her stabs are, are deeply as well. We see this when Michael goes outside and his parents and the blood is halfway up the knife. Yeah. I still love that shot of him just standing there holding the knife, though. I never understood the parents just standing there looking at him like, what? They're, they're, like what? Yeah. Like like they're waiting for him to hand them a gift at Christmas or something. You know, it's like. Right. Uh, I don't know. My six year old just came outside with a bloody knife on and blood all over his clothes. I I think I'd be a little bit more. Little. Yeah, I think I would. I I don't. I don't know what I would have done, but I know I wouldn't have just been standing there being like, "Oh, what's uh, what's going on here? Uh, you got a bloody knife. Uh, you're covered in blood." I, I've I've also sure exactly I've, I've heard some people um, question. It's like you know how strong would a knife have to be to hold Bob up on on the wall? And to be honest that's with a, you, uh, go ahead. There isn't. No, that's another thing that I was gonna I was gonna bring up is that the is that there's no way that a butcher knife can support a person, let alone being big enough to go through a body and stick into a wall. While that is, there's no way that that could physically happen. It's still one of my favorite scenes. Just him standing there, Bob, and hanging off the wall. And here's the other thing too. Mm-hmm. It's a fucking movie. It's entertainment. No. And <laughs> I mean, just going back, to, I was just at the gym last week, and um, I go into the cardio theater, which it's very dark in there, and I can just get on the elliptical watch a movie on the big screen um, in the dark and be on the Mm -hmm. elliptical. And I don't have to see anybody. I don't have to look at anybody. Nobody gets to look at me. I get to go in and just be submersed. But um, speaking of the rock, you know, his movie rampage was on, was on that morning being played for, for the daily movie. And I, there's been so many people that have raved about that film and I had never watched it, but I, I got to watch, I got to watch the last 30 minutes of it and I'm going, my God has society just gotten very deluded uh, and delusional if they think that that's good. Right. There was so That's kind of how I felt about his movie skyscraper. Like I, I had no desire to watch that movie at all because I'm like, what? Well, first of all, and I'm not, I'm not trying to spoil this for anybody. If anybody's just dying to go out and watch uh, Rampage, but I just wanted to say it's like he gets shot point blank, a few feet away in the lower abdomen, just above his pelvis, where he's oh. where he drops to the ground. He's bleeding. 
Uh, the girl that he's trying to save or whatever goes up, gets in a fight with with one of the villains. Now you got the giant ape and the lizard climbing up the building, smashing everything. Magically, <laughs> magically, Dwayne Johnson is able to come up the building, rescue this girl, save her from the giant gorilla, go down 30 flights of stairs, now starts running through the uh, the, the downtown uh you know, city streets, be able to pick up a fucking machine gun and fire that like crazy. By the way, not selling the gunshot that just happened a couple of minutes ago. <laughs> Run full speed, uh, get flung around by this giant lizard and into things. Mm-hmm. And on top of it being just a gigantic CGI clusterfuck, you're just sitting there looking at this going, there's absolutely no way. And I get it. I can suspend my disbelief to be able to accept a lot of things. Like I can, I can go back, I can watch a movie about dinosaurs that have been extinct for 65 million years, still sit down and say that was right. a very, very well made film, even though it's very far fetched and would never happen. It's impossible. It's impossible for that to happen. At least it made me believe because it was well done enough. This I'm just going, yeah. okay. So, I don't know. Yeah, and that's one of the things that I did like. That's one of the things I did like about Halloween, though, is the fact that even though there are things that you can pick, you can pick out. The movie was, you know, immersive enough to where you you don't think about those things because you're you're hooked, you're sucked into what's going on, and you know, there's not that disbelief of like, you know, this. There's no way that this could happen. On top of the fact that, you know, you're like, what the hell am I watching? Well, how is that even possible? You know, people saying that there's no way um, that the knife could have gone all the way through his body and into the wall and held him up. I beg to differ. I mean, people need to go back and look. I mean, Bob was not the thickest dude. No, he wasn't. You know, um, I think his waist you know, was no. probably 12 inches around and that knife was at least 18. Yeah, right. Probably. Yeah, his waist was as thick as my thigh. Yeah. Yeah, he could. Yeah, I mean, it, it wasn't. But it, even still, even if people say it wasn't possible, it wasn't so crazy to think that that couldn't happen. Yeah, I never thought that because you know, it, it was a well, it was a well done shot. It was, and it was an iconic kill. It was an iconic scene. Oof. It's one of my favorites of oh. all time, and so um, that's really all that I have. Um, over, you know, going over the different things and whatnot. Um, we do have a, a few questions uh, from the Facebook page um, from the group. Um, let's see. One of the questions was from Eric Hoffer. Okay. Um, why did uh, said why did Michael learn? Uh, why did Michael know how to drive? I think I know it's obvious. But would be uh, would be to move the story along. But wonder if it was there was more to it. We actually kind of covered that in the the wind scene. And see, here here's the thing: is scenes like that we're really not supposed to think about. You know, right. we're, not, we're not really supposed it's kind to of throwaways. Yeah, it's like I, I'm sure in John Carpenter's mind because you've heard John Carpenter say on many interviews that you know he always looked at Michael as just this force of nature and. 
he could do things that no normal man could do. And it's like when you really look at it in that context, it's like, okay, like you've already covered, the the scene was designed, like you said, to move the story along. We're not supposed to really think about it. And hell, Mm -hmm. three quarters of the times that we see him on screen, he's doing things that most men would not be able to do. How would somebody take six shots to the chest, fly off of a two-story building, land in the middle of the ground, and then just get up and walk away? Especially since The Rock wasn't acting in 1978. Exactly. You got it. You got it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) The next question uh, from Dylan Cloud asked, uh, why does Brackett act like Loomis let Myers out despite Loomis coming to him for help so quickly? Um, and this is the part... And I have a thought on that myself, too, but... Uh, you go first. You go first. I was just going to... I don't... And the, the way that I always interpreted it was not so much that it was like... Like, I don't think that Brackett actually thought that it was Loomis's fault for, you know, um, Myers escaping... But it is kind of Meyer. It is kind of Loomis's. He was he was Loomis's responsibility, you know. And even though it wasn't his fault that he got out, you know, and that Myers went back to Haddonfield, you know, I don't necessarily think about, you know, why did you let him out? But you know, there, essentially. I I'll tell you until. Until Dylan asked that question, I really never gave much thought to it because mm-hmm. I look at I look at our society today, how everything is blown out of proportion, especially by the media. <laughs> right. Okay? Who's to say? And this is another reason why I wish the the TV scenes were included. Because when Loomis went before the board, it was him and like several other people on the panel that was, you know, on the doctor board to basically say on the state to basically agree or not agree to keep him locked up. So um, then they were supposed to go uh, before the judge to have him move and they were going to dope him up on Thorazine or whatever that was, that, that little comment towards the beginning when she's like, he'll, he'll, he'll barely be able to sit up. Uh, and he's like, right. that's, that's the idea, you know, <laughs> but yeah, you know, we don't know in, in a case like that in a small town like that in a state like that, that had to make national news. And again, we didn't see any of this. So there's a, a lot left for the interpretation. Right. If, if I had to guess, is the way the media spun it and the way it probably reached a lot of the local outlets was um, Michael Myers is going to be relinquished into uh, you know what was the what was the place he was going to like a minimal minimal uh, minimum security facility mm. and you know by the time Loomis is coming to warn everybody what's going on all bracket. And and again, I'm just trying to put my own interpretation into it because again, it wasn't explained. So the way I always took it was 
he probably heard a much different version to the story. All he knows is that's his um, patient. That was his mm-hmm. responsibility. Um, he's getting out. You, you're responsible for this. But he's right. lump, he's lumping him into everyone, and that's why he he's constantly saying, even in part two, it was more so in part two. Uh, after he found out that his daughter's dead, is he goes and you let him out? And he goes, I didn't let him <laughs> out. I had him orders for him to be restrained, and at that point, um, all he's doing is he's lumping him into this was your responsibility. Nobody mm-hmm. else was there except for you and the board, and somehow he's being let go. You're part of that problem. And so that's exactly. that's the way I always took it, at least. Yeah, that's that's um, not so much on the media spin that you put, even though that does make sense. Um, yeah, we don't. We could just assume that there was there would have to have been some sort of coverage on the news of him being either moved or anything like that, and the fact that he got out would be like you know. Not, Here's another uh, little nugget or mistake or Easter egg, whatever you want to say. So you were asking me earlier if if I had anything, and I didn't at the time, but now I do, now that we're talking about his escape and everything. Um, Right. When uh, Nurse Marion drives off the road, when Loomis gets out of the car at the very beginning, and you see the the hand come down and smash the window, (laughs) uh, there's a a wrench in his hand. Is there? Yep. Well, I no, I never noticed that. That would make sense. I did, I, I, I had seen that brought up that there's no way that his hand is strong enough to shatter glass like that. Well, that's, that's what they were trying to shoot that his hand was strong enough. But the movie mistake is is they put a wrench in there so that the glass would actually break when he hit it and he wouldn't uh, cut his hand. Ah, uh, okay. Well, no, I didn't know that. That's uh, that's that's. Awesome. <laughs> I'm gonna have to go back and watch that part and see if you can if I can see it. And uh the the rain that was raining in that scene, apparently that was a PVC sprinkler system and the water was ice cold. I I did hear about the ice cold water. Um one of the plot holes that was about that was out of all the people that were standing outside, they want to know how Loomis knew that that was Michael that was in the car that got away when all you could see is taillights. Um, again, at, at one point, no, at, mm-hmm. at, at one point you see him up on the phone looking out towards the car. Right. Uh, when he jumps up onto the, to the, uh, to the roof of the car. And then, mm-hmm. um, don't tell me he wasn't looking at that when he's she's driving off the road and all that stuff. And then, you know, that, I mean, it was pretty loud, obviously, with tire squealing and all that stuff. And then all of a sudden, as he's running over to the scene, again, we didn't see him running over there, but he's on his way running over where this was to tend to her. He's climbing, uh-huh. he's climbing down off of the roof and into the car when all this is happening. He had to get a right. Glim- he had to get a glimpse of him. Yeah. And that makes sense. It was just one of the things that I saw that had popped up. Um, the last question for our um, little submissions here in this thread. Matt does want to know 
What the hell happened to Bob's sweet van? I would have to assume that it either went back to the family or it was probably auctioned off. It went back to Vans R Us. Vans R Us. It was a sweet van. Yeah. Um, but that's really it for questions. There's uh, there's not a lot. Um, wait, there was a. Let's see here. We all know Nick Castle, Tommy, uh, Tommy L. Wallace, and Deborah Hill all donned the mask and coveralls in H1. I've heard John Carpenter did as well. Is there any truth to this? If so, does anybody know what scene? That's a good question. I didn't even see that. Um, from everything that I read and looked at, the only time I saw or knew of him donning the mask was there's a behind the scenes shot of him wearing a, a cat trucker hat over the mask mm-hmm. with his arm around uh, either Castle or I, I I think it was Tony 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 Moran because he was wearing the stunt mask. Uh, there was that behind the scenes shot, and then of course the the picture that we have of them at the at the rap party, when uh, him, Tommy Lee Wallace, and Nick Castle are playing in their band that they created, um, wearing all wearing the Myers masks. Oh so shit! That's the only that's the only time I knew that he that he wore it. If there's any other time throughout there, I have no idea. Yeah, I've never heard it. Yeah, the only, and and honestly, the only thing I had ever heard too was um, was just uh, with Deborah Hill's. It was her hands that they shown in the opening scene. Um, yep, that's the only thing that I really knew when it came to any other um, crew in costume or doing anything with that. I did hear that. Um... PJ Souls's leg um, got uh, got a little Twinkie sauce on her. Oh, really? <laughs> I hadn't heard that one. I didn't either. I just made it up. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, I was gonna say you had me. But yeah, he was he was uh, he was getting the fuck after that leg. Yeah, he was. Oh, that's right. That's, okay. God damn it. Yep. That was another one of the scenes that I had saw where they were talking about the uh, the funny angles of getting down. Almost as funny as they were talking about how um, in the beginning with uh, Judith and her boyfriend that it was a minute and eight seconds from the time that they went upstairs to when the light went off to when uh, he started walking back down the stairs. And the joke was is it's kind of fucked up to kill Judith after that. <laughs> Yeah, but you know what? You know, looking at how 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 roll tied she was and how probably worked up he was, <laughs> um, and the fact that they were whatever age they were, they were teenagers. Uh, no matter if you're looking yeah. at who's math, they're fifteen, sixteen, or seventeen. Right. But she was roll tied, banging. They had been probably making out for a long time, and uh, He's, yeah, all he, revved up and ready to go. I mean, hell, we, we've all saw. American Pie, you know, it's like as soon as he touched Nadia's leg, he blew his fucking load. I mean, it, at 17, yeah. man, there, there's a lot of premature ejaculation. You know, it's it's a real problem. Fair you know? enough. I, I feel for him. I also feel for her. But at the same time, can't blame him. He was so turned on. He just couldn't con- couldn't control himself. And he probably had to get the hell out of there to uh, hide in shame. Yeah, it's very possible. 
<laughs> but she was roll tied. God damn it. <laughs> uh, same same with PJ Souls back then. Good lord, how how? Oh old? yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Seventies, man. Anything else you got, or is or is that going to be? No, it for man. Us? That's 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 um that's pretty much it on my end. For everyone listening out there, appreciate you uh, following us, asking the questions, joining in with us, uh, obviously supporting our shirts, which you heard at the very beginning of the show. Don't want to bore you with all that, but if um, you know if there's any anything that you guys want to cover. Uh, throw it up in a poll on the on the group, and you know we'll we'll do what we did here. We didn't think that we were going to have enough for a full episode here, and had a lot more beef on the on the bone than we thought that we did. Oh yeah, delicious. All right. Well, thanks a lot, Brandon, and uh, everyone out there. Yeah, we'll thanks talk for to having you. me. No problem. We'll talk to everybody next week. This is the Halloween Unleashed podcast. <laughs>